Theory. Finally, a podcast about the church for the church. Sit back and relax because you're now entering the reformed mental state. Hosted by the Chicano Knox. Coming from that gangster gospel perspective. Coming straight out of Geneva. All right. Thank you so much for joining Bible Theory once again. This is your host, the Chicano Knox, coming live and direct. For those who don't know, uh, you know, I do check analytics. Uh, I do um, answer my comments. Uh, you know, for those who comment below on social media, uh, for those who have Facebook, you know, I just got back on Facebook. I took a four-year sabbatical from Facebook. Um, you know, for the podcast, I had to get on Twitter. Uh, so follow me on Twitter. I had to get on Getter. For those who don't know, I was on Getter. Uh, you know, I'm on on YouTube, but I, my podcast is not on YouTube yet. I am thinking about it. So pray for me as Bible theory makes some choices in the near future. If I talk weird, it's because I just got myself some braces. Uh, you know, you, you know what I mean? So I just got to get my teeth a little bit more straighter. And that's probably why, uh, you know, my, my, my voice is sounding weird. And also, if you hear things in the background, don't worry about it. Because, you know, where I'm at, there's uh, tons of windstorms right now. So it's blowing all kinds of crazy. Uh, anyway, so back to the show. I want to give a shout out to everybody in Mexico, Mexico. I finally made it to Mexico. You know what I mean? I went to Cuba first. You know what I mean? So all my listeners in, in Cuba. I see you and all my listeners in Mexico. I see you. So I appreciate all your support and love from, from Mexico, from all, all the cities in Mexico. So thank you so much. Uh, real quick, uh, you know, for those who don't know, um, you know, this show is about the church, the doctrine of the church. I like to talk about the church, um, you know, from its doctrinal point of view, from its theological point of view, from its church history. Um, I talk about the church from every perspective possible within Christendom, you know, we talk about a little bit about the end times, we talk a little bit about church history, the deacons, you know, the eldership, you know, the authority of scripture, you know what it is, we, we've done it all almost, and, and you can, I can never have enough, you know, talking about the church, I love the church, I, I love talking about it, thinking about it, so this is what the show is about, real quick, this episode is basically about the church in Egypt, so I have a, spe a very special guest with me, uh, James Fitzgerald. Um, James, real quick, go ahead and introduce yourself. Talk about who you are and, and what you do. Yeah. Hi, Jesse. Thanks uh, for having me on the show. Um, it's, a, it's an honor uh, to be with you and uh, with your uh, uh, audience on the show. can plant churches and uh, administer the sacraments and so forth. And so my area uh, that I work in is in the Middle East and North Africa. We use uh, Egypt as a, uh, as a platform uh, in order to reach the rest of uh, the Middle East and North Africa. And so we are currently uh, in Egypt and Iraq, uh, Tunisia, uh, Morocco. We've been to Jordan. And so what we're trying to do is provide biblical and theological educational resources uh, through seminary education. We, we founded a seminary in Egypt, and uh, we've also uh, helped to, to build and construct uh, nearly 100 churches there. Uh, recently started a publishing ministry in which we are now translating uh, books from uh, good, good quality 
books written in English uh, into Arabic. Wow, very, very awesome. The translation part, that's very unique. <clears throat> A lot of ministries don't include the translation part. You know, the Reformation yeah. was successful for a large part mm. where God made available uh, the technology of the Gutenberg, the printing press. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So uh, if that wasn't around, you know, who knows what, what would have happened with the Reformation in terms of it spreading it, you know, faster, you know? Right. Yeah, no, it was obviously that was an important piece of technological uh, advancement that helped to spread the Reformation. And um, yeah, so we're trying to, to duplicate that in a similar way, uh, using the, the printing presses in Egypt. Uh, uh, our books are, are actually printed in Egypt, and uh, then uh, they go out to distributors and they go all around the Middle East and North Africa. So, you know, that's a, a good model. And uh, younger people in the East are, are not uh, readers. So we're trying to also teach people uh, the love of literature and the love of reading, you know, with all the different types of media and so forth. Uh, there's a lot of audio material that's uh, available, but there isn't much print material. And so we're trying to make these books uh, that will have a long shelf life and will also help people learn you know, to love reading uh, again, because it's sort of a, a lost and dying, uh, you know, form uh, of communication these days. No, absolutely. Uh, a lot of leaders are readers. I know yeah, uh, right. JFK, I know JFK was a speed reader. Uh, Winston mm. Churchill was, a, he mm. loved books. Spurgeon mm. read pretty much every book, you know, Puritan book there was. Calvin read all, a, a bunch of books, you know what I mean? Mm. So if you want mm. to be a leader, I would suggest you become a reader because yeah. readers are readers and then readers are, you know what I mean? So yeah, get yourself a good great. book and, you know, dig yourself into it. And it's a whole new world, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. One of the things we're doing to try to help them is we've been, we've been um, translating these works uh, called short studies in systematic theology that uh, are published by Crossway. So we did. Uh, and the thing about them is, is that they are short. So they're, you know, they're, they're technical and they are, you know, high quality theological books um, without having to read, a, you know, an entire systematic theology. So we just did uh, a book by Scott Swain called The Trinity. And then we did The Person of Christ by Stephen Wellam. And we just finished The Attributes of God by Gerald Bray. Um, Disability in the Gospel by um, Michael Batis. <clears throat> and those are now all out for distribution. Wow, fantastic and, yeah. news. Yeah, yeah. awesome. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Giving people small bites of yeah. the big elephant, yeah. man. One, one bite yeah. at a time. Exactly. That's a great way to express that. And um, so, you know, they can take it on the train, the bus, you know, and the taxi. They can read it, you know, and they can have some, okay, I can finish this book, you know, some concept of this is readable. I can finish it, you know, so it's not, it, they're not intimidating in that sense. So when you're trying to, you know, get people again to, you know, catch on to love reading. So yeah, we're, we're really excited about this aspect. This is the newest part of our ministry, research how to do this and to do it at a high quality, because much of the material that gets translated into Arabic uh, is not done well, especially like even if it's done well theologically or biblically, it's not done well grammatically from a you know linguistic point of view. There are many different dialects of Arabic. And so when people translate, they just sort of translate into their own you know, dialect. You know, that has both pluses and minuses. It's positive and negative. But what we're trying to do is produce a high level, you know, grammatical 
uh, grammatically correct and theologically correct uh, book so that we could, we're also using this, you know, not just to teach theology, but to teach, you know, good, solid Arabic grammar uh, at the same time. Now, are you referring to um, like King James type talking level of Arabic versus NIV yeah. type talking? Yeah, no. Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, yeah. So what we what we've tried to do is to sort of bridge the gap, you know, so you you basically have, you know, the dialects that are spoken, like, you know, Egypt has a dialect, Lebanon has a dialect, Jordan has a dialect. Well, you know, the, 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 the Levant area between Jordan and Lebanon in that area you know, have a very similar dialect. And then Egypt has its own dialect. Tunisia has a dialect. Morocco has a dialect. And, you know, like in those areas of Tunisia, Morocco, and Algeria, they were uh, they were also occupied by the French for a very long time. So their their Arabic is mixed with French and so forth. You know, you're you're somewhat narrowing, you know, the the reach of of that book. So for instance, like um, the the one positive thing about the Egyptian dialect is that because they do a lot of news shows, they do a lot of comedy, they do a lot of drama, television, movies, etc. So their dialect is known more uh, throughout the, the Arabic speaking world. But if you just go directly from the spoken language, because the Arabic dialect is not a written language, it's a spoken language, you also lose something. So what we've tried to do structurally, technically, so we've tried to take that, uh, that positive aspect of uh, the Lebanese, uh, also modern standard Arabic, which is what we would call classical Arabic, um, take the grammatical rules from that, and yet still use the theological and you know and vocabulary of of the of the Egyptian dialect. So we call it a hybrid model, um, and um, so it has a, a high level of technical quality, but it's also readable. And we preserve the narrative. We preserve the art of the narrative. At the same time, we're producing a very high level, uh, you know, grammatical work. So I would say what we're trying to do is build a bridge, you know, between, uh, let, let's say, between like the Living Bible and um, and the King James Bible. You know, we're trying to build a bridge into that, you know, and hopefully we'll end up with something like the ESV if that gives you a, a kind of a, a range of what, what we're trying to do. No, it does. It does. And then it's a great work. Translation is a very important piece of Christian history. The church mm. has been involved in translating, translating, and that's mm. a very important piece if we're going to continue building God's kingdom mm -hmm. um, and reaching the unreached is translation and, and, and Bible mm. translation and book translation and all that. That's going to have to be important uh, moving forward. Um, so explain a little bit about your experience with Egypt. Why Egypt? What got you started? Um, just give us a little bit of the origin story of the ministry in Egypt. Yeah, so I, you know, I was a pastor in the PCA here for uh, in the Orlando area for about 13 years, and I had pastored in other uh, churches uh, prior to that uh, on, you know, all the different sort of levels, you know, from doing youth ministry, singles ministry, children's ministry, you know, assistant pastor, associate pastor, and so forth uh, previous to that. And, you know, was very content in that role, happy warrior, so to speak. When I was the associate pastor at a PCA church here in the area, Orlando area, we, um, our, our senior pastor was getting close to retirement age. 
he didn't want to retire, you know, from ministry, but he wanted to perhaps retire from being the senior pastor. So we started a ministry out of our church called Equipping Pastors International. It was started by the session specifically for him to, uh, he and his wife to do ministry, more primarily in East Africa, but they, you know, they had a broader range than that, but primarily in East Africa. So we started that ministry and then the ministry sort of grew. Uh, there is an interesting side story there in as much as this pastor had a, a, a spectacular preacher's death, as it were, after you know being in this ministry for about 10 years. He came back to speak at his home church where I was the pastor at the time. So you were a pastor at the time and the ministry, the session basically called it out and gave you permission to send it, sent, sent you. Yes. Back. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. so, so t tell us some of the challenges that you guys face um, in, in Egypt when you guys are going, you know, because um, Egypt is a unique place. Egypt is a very unique place, has a rich history, has a long history. Uh, God you know, the Old Testament is there, you know, you know, you, you got the tombs, you got, you got Pharaoh, you got the Muslim, the, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood and all that. You got, you know, the world history runs through Egypt in, in, yeah. in a way. Yeah. So what, what are some of the challenges that you guys are facing when you guys are trying to build the church in Egypt? You know, it's, it's interesting. I, uh, when I had decided to go full-time into ministry, uh, I was just mentioning Jack Arnold, the, the founder of this ministry had passed away. Um, and then they invited me to come and be part of uh, equipping pastors. I, I didn't know where I was going to minister. And then I, I, I got an email from Egypt, um, from a church in Egypt, asking me to come and do some training there, which I was delighted uh, by. But, you know, we get a lot of emails, you know, asking us to go in different places. You don't know if they're reputable or not, but this turned out to be so. So within about a month, I was in Egypt and met with the, the pastor and his uh, team there and, and the church in Cairo. And we started developing a strategy, you know, to reach the pastors there because the church had started to go liberal, you know, there. Uh, the seminary that was previously there was going liberal. Uh, it was being influenced by the PCUSA. It still is today. They're, they're more liberal now than they were 13 years ago when I arrived on the scene. Train these pastors and equip them in good, reformed, conservative the theology. And so, yeah, there were many challenges. The biggest challenges, you know, in, in one sense, were not coming from Islam or the government or other other areas they were coming from the church itself because you know like i said the pc usa was there they had a seminary there that was in existence since 1854 and so that was a very sort of strong challenge to us you know but really god led the way it was i always tell people you know this is easy it was the easiest thing i've, I've ever done you know i've been in ministry for I don't know, 30 years, this was the easiest thing I've ever done. And so even though there are challenges, you know, we, we had two revolutions, about, you know, after we started this. And uh, like you said, the Muslim Brotherhood is there. And, um, you know, all of those things uh, present problems. You know, you're an Islamic country and, you know, we've gone through, I mean, since I started there, when I started there, Mubarak was the president. Then you had the first revolution. Morsi became the president. That meant, you know, the brother, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood was in power. Uh, they controlled the executive and the legislatures. And then a year later, they had another revolution. And then President Sisi came to power. 
And that's actually been, by and large, I think, the fairest uh, government that Egypt has had in, uh, in multiple decades. It's the most tolerant to Christianity. And so they have, so the, you know, the government there had, you know, sort of become a, an enemy to an ally at this point, you know, uh, in, in Egypt. Um, so we, you know, we started a seminary there. We've actually built physical structures for churches. You know, we've built almost 100 churches there and then now the publishing ministry so like when we first started building churches there we built two churches and at that time it was under the mubarak regime to build a church or to repair a church required an executive order from the president of the country and so we found ways to with our domestic partners here and with our foreign partners there we found a way sort of to get around those orders so we built two churches then we built five then we built ten Things got worse under Morsi then, but we still were able to continue seminary. We were able to continue building churches, you know, uh, translating resources, et cetera. And then uh, under Sisi, it's actually to the point now where the government is donating the land to the churches to build churches. Every, every time they build a new city, it, it's actually, you know, become an ally in, in that sense. Still challenges that we face, you know, uh, it's still the Middle East, it's still North Africa, still challenges, but, um, uh, and each country has its own set of uh, challenges, you know, as well. Like, for instance, in Morocco in 2010, you know, they kicked out all the missionaries out of Morocco. It's very difficult, you know, to do ministry there, but um, by God's grace, you know, we were able to plant a church, a uh, little house church. You know, it's not technically a church with elders and everything, but it's, it's, you know, it's a place where they can worship, they can disciple, you know, uh, they can have Bible studies and prayer meetings and so forth. And it's growing, but the government is a big challenge there, getting in and out of the country. We had something like 52 Yazidis uh, profess faith in Christ. Uh, we developed a little house for them to meet in and to worship in people coming from the refugee camps uh, and the displaced people's camps and, uh, and you know, having a place to worship and to meet and providing them with sound, reformed, biblical teaching and watching them, watching them grow to the point where they couldn't even, you know, they, if you gave them a Bible, it was the first time they ever saw a Bible, you know, other than maybe on their phone. They didn't know one end of the Bible from the other. You know, we had to literally turn the pages for them and to watch them grow over, you know, the next three, four years and become biblically literate in the shortest amount of time, you know, from where they, they wouldn't even recognize any Bible story, never heard the Bible stories before, to the point where if you just mentioned the Bible story, they knew it, you know. So that was really an amazing, amazing thing. Full of the challenges, you know, ISIS is full in full bloom at that time. These yeah. people, some of them, been in the refugee camps for five years, you know. Yeah, you know, Egypt is a very interesting place. You know, I looked up some of the stuff going on and, you know, they're they're having like battles with uh, Ethiopia with water and like they're trying mm -hmm, to build mm -hmm. new cities and turn the desert into grass. And, mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? And it, it's, it's, it's wild. But based on what you said, it sounds like the Lord the Lord is doing his work still in the middle of all yeah, those, yeah, of all yeah. those uh, strife. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, there, yeah, there has been some conflict with Ethiopia. I think, you know, the Egyptian government has handled it pretty well. But you can't believe the amount of building that has gone under just in just in 20, between 20, 2020 and 2021 during COVID. He completely changed the way Cairo, he built 40, 48 bridges, overpasses throughout the city of Cairo in one year, several new roads and, you know, new cities are springing up all over the place. And every time, every time he builds a new city, he puts a Coptic church, an evangelical church, and a mosque in each each city. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very interesting. I'm surprised people just don't make them pharaoh. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, it's you know, Egypt's always had a pharaoh. I mean, yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah. With all these cities being built and bridges, it's yeah. like, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's that's you know, it's it's some. Uh, authoritarian, autocratic uh, government to a large extent, although he has increased the power of the legislature more than before. But um, uh, and he has more fair representation. He has Christians in the government. He has women in the government. You know, he has Muslims and uh, uh, you know different you know kinds of Muslims in in the government. And so you know, it, I would say he's created a pretty fair environment uh, for, for, you know, all the parties. Of course, it doesn't work perfectly. And, you know, there's always a lot of room for improvement in the Middle East and North Africa. But but I would say, you know, he's he's, he's done a good job with that, uh, by and large, by being fair to Christianity. I think he was the first president to go you know, to the to the cathedral of St. Mark's in, in Egypt. And yeah, that sounds pretty cool. You know, um, the Lord works in mysterious ways sometimes, you know, even yeah. rich people and non-Christians or, you know, whoever's a rich guy and not a Christian, but yet treats the church well. In mm-hmm. my point of view, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, that's a friend of mine. You know, I like yeah. that kind of attitude. Like mm-hmm. whoever treats the church best, yeah. favors the right. church best, that's, right. that's, that's who I yeah. like. Yeah. Right, you know, create it creates a favorable environment for the church to flourish, right. and um, that really can't be underestimated. And God, you know, through the biblical history, you you can see Cyrus and others, you know, who have a favorable attitude towards God's people, you know, and that promotes the uh, the welfare and, uh, and and an environment in which those God's people can flourish. And, but you know, those are important things, you know. It seems to me like in the West, we're doing the opposite, you know, and yet here in Egypt and other parts of the Middle East and North Africa, you know, they're creating environments in which the church can flourish. Yeah, and and, and it sounds amazing that the church is flourishing there in Egypt in a place where it needs it. And so um, let's go back to the the people of Egypt, you know, the seminary student. Mm -hmm. What's the typical daily life for a seminary student in, in Egypt? What kind of books they are? Are they reading? What kind of questions are they asking? Their their encounters with the gospel for the first time. What kind of questions are, are they asking about the gospel? Uh, Calvinism, stuff like that. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, those are all great questions and springboards for for other questions. <laughs> yeah. So you know, I mean, first of all, the one thing about being in Egypt is it it widens your perspective. Um, because you're dealing with perhaps the most, the strongest and oldest patriarchy uh, in Christendom. You're going back to the days in Alexandria when Alexandria was the intellectual and theological capital of the Christian world. Everything went through Alexandria, so to speak. Uh, the same can be said in some ways about North Africa, because you know you have Augustine 
Surrey, you know, uh, you know, in the Carthage, Tunisia area, uh, Algeria area. Then you know you have the, the great powerhouses of Clement and Origen and, and Athanasius. There you have the you know the big theological debates uh, with Arianism and other you know theological uh, problems that uh, Egypt is very uh, important in terms of resolving those in favor of orthodoxy. Uh, I think there were something like 15 bishops at the Council of Nicaea in 325. You, you know, you have this history, you know, uh, the tradition, uh, Egyptian tradition would say that, you know, Mark was, the gospel writer Mark was the founder of uh, the Egyptian church. Egypt had mass conversions, I think, largely because of, uh, of the Pharaonic religion, which prepared the way in God's providence for the people to, you know, receive the gospel when, uh, when Mark came there, according to tradition. Uh, Mark then took the gospel all over North Africa. And that's sort of, by the way, the pattern that we're trying to follow, you know, using Egypt as a platform to reach the entire region. And that was Mark's uh, strategy as well if tradition is correct. And then of course you have the whole thing, you know, I mean, you look at, uh, you know, continuing to broaden the perspective. I mean, you have, you know, Abraham in Egypt, you have Moses in Egypt, Aaron in Egypt, Jeremiah in Egypt, Joseph in Egypt. You know, the, the, the biblical history there is incredible. And then you have Jesus in Egypt. One of the things I always like to say is that Egypt saved the life of Jesus twice, you know, uh, once, you know, in the, the loins of Judah, you know, Joseph's brother, uh, who, from whom we get the tribe of Judah and uh, from the tribe from which Jesus comes from, you know, so if there's no Judah, there's no Jesus. So Egypt saved the life of, of, of Judah through Joseph. And then when, when the Holy Family was, you know, fleeing um, uh, Israel and having to go into uh, Egypt to get away from the wrath of Herod, uh, Egypt saved the life of Jesus a second time, and um, and uh, and so you know without I mean you know the, Egypt is such an integral part of the biblical story and of salvation history. Um, you know, out of Egypt I have brought my son. Blessed be Egypt, my people. You know, uh, these are you know I mean the 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 immensity and importance of Egypt in terms of biblical history, both negative and positive, is, is uh, breathtaking when you realize you're standing on that soil. Um, and, um, and so, you know, you, then you get this whole idea that, you know, wow, this was, this was the church before, you know, there was even a reformation, you know, this is pre-modern church. Uh, many of the theological disputes are solved there. And then around, around the in the 19th century, around 1854, uh, the first Reformed Presbyterian missionaries arrived in Egypt. Um, they started a seminary on the Nile River in, 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 uh, in Middle Egypt, or what begins to be called Upper Egypt. It's uh, south of Cairo. Um, it used to be like the, the capital of the south. Um, uh, and it's called Upper Egypt because it goes up in elevation, but it's actually going south. And that's a, a city called Asut, which is still one of the most densely populated of Christian populations. Uh, but the Presbyterians went there and they started a seminary that was on meeting on a boat in the Nile River. And they started training pastors there. And this, you know, this was back in the time when the church was conservative and reformed. And, 
and so forth. And then between 1854 and when we arrived in uh, 2009, uh, the, the liberal influences of the PCUSA had settled in there and began to uh, control, uh, like it did here in America, control the committees and control the seminaries and so forth. And the church started to drift uh, to, uh, to liberalism. Um, and so, you know, we started the seminary in order to, to, to counter that trajectory, that liberal trajectory and take it back to what it was when, it, when the evangelical church was founded there. And, um, and so we started that in about 2010 and we've been doing it uh, all the way to, to the present. In fact, I just got back from our seminary classes in Egypt last, last Saturday. And, um, and so these students, you know, we, we are uh, an alternative seminary. We meet for a week. We do intensive classes in three subjects for a week. Uh, we have reading materials, some of which we've translated, obviously. But there's also other good ministries. Uh, there's Third Millennium Ministries that has a good Arabic uh, department. There's Ligonier Ministries that has a good Arabic department. Um, there is um, uh, uh, the Gospel Coalition has some very good Arabic resources. Um, uh, Bavink, for instance, is in Arabic. Um, Calvin's Institutes are in Arabic uh, from the Lebanese side of things. Um, two good translations from the Lebanese that they produced in Calvin's Institutes. Um, and uh, John Piper has many resources in, uh, in Arabic now. Um, so it's really coming together. When I first started there, there were almost no resources, you know, but now it's really coming together uh, where we're producing a lot of resources, uh, you know, through a lot of different uh, ministries. And, um, and so they're reading all those things. They're reading Calvin's Institutes. They're reading Bavink. They're reading, um, you know, Scott Swain. They're reading Stephen Wellam. They're reading Gerald Bray, Michael Batis, uh, and... Um, and uh, so we have, oh, and, and as well is um, uh, there's uh, another systematic uh, uh, theology that's in Arabic as well. So we have um, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology is, is uh, in Arabic as well. Uh, we parse that carefully because there are some sections of that that, you know, would be uh, in, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, different than say in Bob Inc or in Calvin and whatnot. So we, but yeah, yeah, and still it's a, it's a, it's a broadly speaking, it's a good evangelical resource. It's in Arabic. And, um, and then I'm constantly discovering other resources, you know, um, that were translated much longer ago, but, you know, they're out of print, but we're finding them. And um, so the, so our students are engaging with, you know, all these different um, uh, uh, Arabic resources, um, uh, you know, that are giving them good quality reform theology. And so after our classes, um, then, you know, we give them assignments uh, that, that will last for the semester. They have to do research work and uh, they have to read materials and report on those materials. They get tested uh, and uh, so forth. Because our classes meet, you know, in an alternative format and they're intensive. Um, I spend a lot of time in Egypt. I spend a lot of time with these pastors. I spend a lot of time with their families. Um, I spend a lot of time with their churches. I have deep abiding relationships with, you know, the Egyptian pastors and the Egyptian people. Um, uh, and 
And so, and then now uh, some of our students are taking mission trips to Turkey. They're taking mission trips to Iraq. They're taking mission trips to the Sudan, you know, and they're spreading this same, in fact, we've created a, a spinoff of our seminary that's actually training Syrians inside of Turkey. You know, it's just, it's just really encouraging to see that they are the seminary and the resources that other ministries are producing are uh, now these Egyptian brothers and sisters are putting the, the hands, the feet, the legs and, and taking this material and what they've learned and, and replicating it in other countries, you know, in the region, which was, you know, which is our vision, which is our goal. Which is the Great Commission, which is yeah. the, goal, the goal of the church. And one of the goals of the church is to reach the world, disciple the world, baptize in, yep. in the name of the Father, mm. the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So Amen. that, that Amen. is a very awesome scenario, very front row knowledge, you know, are not as happening as much in the United States as it once was, the frequency level, should I say? Mm. So mm. I think hearing that really, really gets me turned on and excited to get it going, you know. Uh, but yeah. very, very awesome. So like when you go into these churches, are, are they like uh, reform worship? Are they like doing, um, you know, like call to worship? Are, 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 are they trying uh, to like, you know, integrate, um, you know, con contemporary worship? Like, yeah, what's the, what, what's the setup there? Yeah. So, yeah, it, you know, different churches will do different things. Uh, you know, by the time we arrived on the scene there in around 2009, you know, the, the, the Western evangelical, broad, broadly speaking, you know, the, the broad evangelical uh, contemporary scene was already fully entrenched there. The difference is, is, you know, they do Arabic music and so forth, but it's, it was, it's to a large degree, very entertainment driven. You know, most of your, you know, uh, mid, mid to big, mid, mid-sized to big churches, you know, you know, contemporary in their worship styles, you know, they have some type of liturgy, obviously, but in Egypt, and I continue to teach it and I continue to weave it into all my uh, courses that I teach um, position. I'm trying to get them to get past, you know, 30 minutes of music and 40 minutes of preaching, you know, kind of contemporary uh, outlook on worship but but it, you know it's a work in progress and some churches have caught on to that you know um some of the you know uh, in our church in orlando when i was pastoring you know we we did weekly communion we celebrated the lord's supper weekly um because that was calvin's uh i mean first of all i i, I believe it's biblical and secondly I, that was calvin's position in geneva uh, it was a battle he lost however but it was nevertheless his position and some of the churches have implemented that. Some of the churches have implemented the parts of the liturgy. I've sent them and taught them orders of worship, you know, with, that include a call to worship, a, a collect or a prayer of adoration, confession of sin, uh, assurance of pardon, the, the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacrament, uh, singing uh, and composing, you know, because there are a lot of musicians and writers there trying to get them to compose songs that are, you know, theologically correct you know biblical songs you know unfortunately a lot of the songs that were getting written there were uh, very anemic theologically you know like like in america you know you can sort of you know you can take the name of your girlfriend and replace it with the name jesus and it's the same song you know so trying to build a higher regard for theology and music theology and prayer theology and worship you know, good expository biblical preaching 
that culminates in the celebration of the sacrament. So it's a work in progress. There's a long ways to go in that regard. Uh, the Western Church had, has made its inroads in there, you know, kind of long before we landed in Egypt. But but I will say that we have seen some progress, but there's still a long ways to go in that regard. Yeah, that's unfortunate, you know, that all the, you know, Jesus is my girlfriend type stuff. It's definitely, mm -hmm. you know, worldwide, unfortunately. And yeah, yeah, you know, for those who are listening to Hillsong and Bethel and Elevation and all that anthem stuff, you mm -hmm. know, just take a quick look at the fruits of the works of these so-called laborers. You mm. know, recently, all the scandals, all the financial mm. scandals, the tax mm. evasions, the all these things, mm. you know what I mean? And I want to be grateful at the same time because it's like, you know, we're all sinners. Sure. But at the yeah, same yeah, time, yeah. it's like, just look at all that stuff. It's kind of like, well. No, I was just going to say, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a form of discipleship and mentoring, um, you know, that takes place. In addition to just teaching a course on that, you know, I tried to mentor people, you know, to help them move. Uh, move in that direction as, 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 as much as it can. Of course, these are big deals, you know, in churches, you know, you change anything in a worship service and people go crazy. You know, it's like, right. you know, I'm, le I'm leaving the church, you know, you, and uh, so, you know, you have to, you have to teach them how to teach their people, how to coach their people, to bring them to the place where they see that this is the, you know, the right form of worship for them. Real quick, uh, before we wrap up, I wanted to see if you have any stories of, reformation of people that are coming to christ you know any stories you could share of like a person or a pastor that was like living in one way believing another way and then all of a sudden encountered the gospel and then changed his way uh, you know anything like that maybe like a business owner or a pastor or just you know i don't want to like because i don't believe in decisionisms and all that stuff but right sure but at the same time, it's like, you know, there's stories of conversions, yes. uh, you know, being told in the, in the United States that, you know, Muslims are coming to Christ. There's a massive exodus. Sure. Uh, Muslims are like having dreams of Jesus, like all kinds mm -hmm. of stuff that are being told to us. Yeah. Um, obviously, you're not, you know, your ministry is not in every Muslim country. And this is just about right. Egypt. But I yeah. was wondering if you could just touch on those type of things real quick. Yeah, I mean, well, actually, yeah. I mean, so we're Egypt is our platform. But, you know, as I mentioned before, we're in Tunisia, Morocco, Iraq. Uh, we've been to Jordan. We would already be in Algeria and uh, if uh, COVID hadn't hit. And we're, our, our plans are to go to Libya, to, you know, uh, Iran, you know, wherever, you know, wherever God will open a door. So, you know, we're, we have... Our, our scope is the entire Middle East and North Africa. Um, so, for instance, I, I mentioned this briefly, but, you know, in, in Iraq, we had uh, 52 Yazidis. The Yazidis are one of the most ancient religions in Iraq. And uh, the name of their god is Shaitan, which uh, if you think it sounds like Satan, it does. And they were one of the main targets in Sinjar. You probably remember the stories of Mount Sinjar, people up on the mountain there fleeing ISIS as ISIS destroyed their entire city and leveled it, I mean, right to the ground, not a stone upon a stone. And these people fled up into Mount Sinjar and were there for nearly a month before they got rescued. And uh, there are many stories of conversions on that mountain. And many after they came down from that mountain and entered the refugee camps inside of Northern Iraq, where we were ministering. And uh, we, we our, my partners and I saw 52 conversions there. In Tunisia, I've seen, you know, we've done 
multiple baptisms in Tunisia of, of people that professed faith in Christ, had a credible profession of faith in Christ, and we would baptize them and get them into these little small house churches uh, uh, that uh, are in Tunisia. We would go around the room and listen to their testimonies, you know, when we do a conference with them or, or something in classes with them. And we'd go, these are all Muslim background, you know, new believers, and they would give their testimonies and, you know, just some incredible stories. But, you know, we always hear in the West about the visions and dreams and so forth and all that uh, that Muslims are having. And I'm, I'm not here to dispute that, uh, except anecdotally, my experience has been Every Muslim testimony that I have heard has been, I read the Bible, I compared it to the Quran, God opened my eyes, and I saw that the Bible was true and the Quran was false. In my estimation, it's the Bible that is the, is, you know, the, the main engine of seeing Muslims convert uh, and profess credible faith in Christ Jesus. Uh, it's the Bible that's the main engine, you know, not visions and dreams. I think the visions and dreams sometimes come because, you know, everybody's got a satellite and everybody hears the charismatics talk about visions and dreams. So they think that their testimony is supposed to include that, you know, and I'm not, again, I'm not disputing that some, you know, have legitimately had those types of experiences, but I think it's more like they've been coached into thinking that that's the way you come to Jesus. So that's how they articulate it. But almost every testimony that I've personally heard, and I have heard a few about the visions and dreams, but almost all others are the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. Word, you know, it's the word of God that always comes back to mind, you know, when when, yeah. when push comes to shove. It's yeah. the scriptures that come to mind, you know, it's the scriptures, yeah. it's the scriptures, it's the word that captures yeah. our, our conscience, it's mm -hmm. the word that captures our imaginations, our thoughts. At least this is supposed to, right? According to history, right, right. A, lot, yeah. a lot of the martyrs were singing the hymns, quoting mm -hmm. the scripture, you know, sure. thinking about, you know, other testimonies in the Bible of other saints in the scripture. Mm -hmm. So it's always the scriptures, you know, sola scriptura, yep. you know, hashtag yep. sola scriptura. Yep. So yep. it's amazing that those people are coming to Christ because they read the Bible, they do an apples to apples comparison and say, hey, mm -hmm. you know, I, I was not told, you know, this and I'm, I'm going to find out. And then they come to terms and then, you know, the Holy Spirit does the rest of the work. It's a right. very amazing thing to see those type of transformation. Um, Jim, real quick, where can people find you and how can people support you? Yeah, thanks. Uh, they can go to equippingpastors.com, equippingpastors.com. We have several missionaries listed there and uh, look me up under Jim Fitzgerald, Jim and Carol Fitzgerald. And uh, we'd love to hear from them. Um, my, my email is jpf.epi at gmail.com. Uh, people are welcome to contact me there. Yeah, we would love uh, for people to pray for us and support our work and, uh, you know, just, uh, yeah, or, you know, for people to come and see as well and learn how they can become a. Thank you for listening to the bible theory don't forget to share this with your homies and subscribe to bible theory on iHeartRadio, spotify itunes amazon music and follow on twitter at the chicano knox